0: Now, you've all probably heard the phrase, the writing is on the wall. You may not have known that it came from the book of Daniel, chapter 5, but it indeed does. And when somebody says the writing is on the wall, what they're kind of saying is, you know, something's coming, Um, something is going to happen, and you got to kind of prepare for it because the writing is on the wall. It's that kind of thing. Well, it actually comes from the book of Daniel, and we'll look at that in a moment. But the greater message, maybe for a modern hearer of the Word of God, is that the writing is on the wall, and it's more than just Daniel chapter 5. In fact, God has written 66 books to us, all inspired by God, all breathed out by God, and all profitable, some of which is prophetic. We've been talking about in the book of Daniel, We have a lot of practical teaching. We we look at the fiery furnace. We look at, you know, Daniel making up his mind not to defile himself. We're going to look at Daniel in the lion's den. He's going to make strong stands against the culture of Babylon. But we're going to see that a big portion of the book of Daniel is prophetic. In fact, I think it's John Walvert who wrote a commentary on the book of Daniel and called Daniel the key to prophetic interpretation. We've been talking about how the book of Daniel is to the Old Testament, what Revelation is to the New Testament. And many prophecy experts would tell you that you can't properly interpret Revelation if you don't know the book of Daniel. So we're going to see some of that as we move on in the book of Daniel. We've already seen kind of a down payment of that in Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2. But tonight, as we look at the writing on the wall, we're going to look at a specific prophecy that actually was given to the nation of Babylon. Let me explain. Babylon, in one sense, was a tool in the hand of God, and God had raised up Nebuchadnezzar to ultimately destroy Jerusalem, to take his people captive as a punishment to their disobedience. And 70 years of captivity would occur. God prophesied it. And it would happen and Daniel knew that because he had the scrolls of Jeremiah and he knew that that prophecy was going to take place. But as much as Nebuchadnezzar was a tool in the hand of God, God had also promised that Babylon was going to be judged. And even though God used Babylon to execute discipline on the people of Israel, Babylon was still culpable for their acts against the people of Israel. Here's an example. This is Isaiah 21. Look at verse 1. It says, The oracle concerning the desert by the sea. Like whirlwinds sweeping through the southland, an invader comes from the desert from the land, a land of terror. Verse 2. A dire vision has been shown to me. The traitor betrays, the looter takes loot. Elam, attack. Medium, lay siege. I will bring to an end all the groaning she caused. At this, my body is racked with pain. Pangs seize me. Like those of a woman in labor. I am staggered by what I hear. I am bewildered by what I see. Isaiah 21 verse 4. My heart falters. Fear makes me tremble. The twilight I long for has become a horror to me. They set the tables. They spread the rugs. They eat. They drink. Get up, you officers. Oil the shields. This is what the Lord says to me. Go post a lookout and have him report what he sees. When he sees chariots with the teams of horses, riders on donkeys or riders on camels, let him be alert, fully alert. And the lookout shouted, day after day, my Lord, I stand on the watchtower every night. I stay at my post. Look, here comes a man in a chariot with a team of horses. And he gives back the answer. Babylon has fallen, has fallen. All the images of its gods lay, lie shattered on the ground. Oh, my people, crushed on the threshing floor, I tell you what I have heard from the Lord Almighty, from the God of Israel. Now, many of you will recognize in uh, Isaiah 21, nine a phrase that is picked up in the book of Revelation. Babylon, Babylon, fallen is Babylon. Because Babylon in the book of Revelation in chapters 17 and 18 represents a world system in defiance to God. And many prophecy experts believe that Babylon in the last days captures a world in rebellion to God, but pictured through Babel back in Genesis 10 and all the way through to the kingdom of Babylon, which worshiped idols and ultimately defied the living God. The next book to your right is the book of Jeremiah. Go all the way to chapter 51 of Jeremiah. For another prophecy, you could say another writing on the wall against the kingdom of Babylon. We will see that this particular writing on the wall is against an individual king and against a nation. 51.47 is where you want to be in Jeremiah. 51.47 says, Therefore, behold, days are coming when I shall punish the idols of Babylon, her whole land will be put to shame, and all her slain will fall in her midst. Fifty-one, forty-eight. Then heaven and earth and all that is in them will shout for joy over Babylon, for the destroyers will come to her from the north, declares the Lord. Indeed, Babylon is to fall for the slain of Israel, as also for uh, Babylon the slain of all the earth have fallen. You who have escaped the sword, depart. Do not stay. Remember the Lord from afar and let Jerusalem come to your mind. We are ashamed because we have heard reproach. Disgrace has covered our faces, for aliens have entered the holy places of the Lord's house. Remember Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 1 of Daniel takes the, the vessels of the temple, puts them in the temple of his God. This is what it depicts. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, 52, declares the Lord, when I shall punish her idols, and the mortally wounded will groan throughout her land. Though Babylon should ascend to the heavens and though she should fortify her lofty stronghold, from me destroyers will come to her, declares the Lord. The sound of an outcry from Babylon and of great destruction from the land of the Chaldeans. For the Lord is going to destroy Babylon. Notice it's God behind the Medes and the Persians. In world history, the Medes and the Persians did destroy Babylon, but God is the ultimate power behind it. He will make her a... a, He will make her loud noise vanish from her. Their waves will roar like many waters. The tumult of their voices sounds forth. For the destroyer is coming against her, against Babylon. Her mighty men will be captured. Their bows are shattered. For the Lord is a God of recompense, and he will fully repay. And I shall make her princes and her wise men drunk. You're going to see a scene in Daniel 5 where Belshazzar has a party. And they begin to drink a wine from the golden vessels they took from the temple and begin, many believe, in a drunken type of orgy party and hear a prophecy. They will be drunk, her governors, her prefects, her mighty men, that they may sleep a perpetual sleep and not wake up, declares the king, whose name is the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the broad wall of Babylon, and indeed the walls were very thick in Babylon, will be completely raised. Her high gates will be set on fire, so the peoples will toil for nothing, and the nations become exhausted only for fire. Now, if you keep going to your right, you're going to get to the book of Daniel, chapter 5. And we do have a historical setting for what took place here. We have a record in history of the night that Babylon fell to the Medo-Persian Empire. And this is in accord with the dream that Nebuchadnezzar dreamed. He was the head of gold. There was chest and arms of silver. This is talked about a little bit more in Daniel 7 with, uh, I think it's a bear and a lion representing um, Babylon and the Medo-Persian Empire. I think I have that correct. But, but uh, we'll get more of that in Daniel chapter 7. But as we close Daniel chapter 4, we saw Nebuchadnezzar humbled. And uh, he gave praise to God which leads you to believe that he became a believer. Look at verse uh, 35 of Daniel 4. It says, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He, God, does according to his will and the host of heaven. Among the inhabitants of the earth, no one can ward off his hand or say to him, What has thou done? At that time, my reason returned to me, Nebuchadnezzar speaking, my majesty, my splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom and my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out so i was reestablished in my sovereignty and surpa- surpassing greatness was added to me now i nebuchadnezzar praise exalt and honor the king of heaven for all his works are true his ways are just his ways just and he is able to humble those who walk in pride you might want to mark that God is able to humble those who walk in pride. We're about to see it again. And it is believed that Belshazzar is most likely, the next king we're going to see in chapter 5, the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. You're going to watch the scene tonight, and you're going to wonder how is it that Belshazzar does not know about the God of Israel, about Daniel, about the things that his own grandfather said about the God of Israel, why would he have a party like this? Why would he shake his fist at God? Why would he take the holy vessels that Nebuchadnezzar now seems to believe are holy and sacred and distinct from his gods? Why would he defile them just to impress his friends and nobles? But then I could throw out a lot of questions about what a lot of people do and why they do it. And I could add that, I wonder why people, a lot of people do the things that they do when they're Christians. Can I get a witness? Why? 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 Do you sometimes look in the mirror and ask that same question? Why? Why do I do that? Why do I act that way? I'm a Christian. I should know better. Well, Belshazzar had information. He had prophecies. He had his own grandfather. But apparently he did not get the message. This is an interesting prophecy. This is um, Jeremiah 27, 7. It says, And all the nations shall serve him and his son and his grandson until the time of his own land comes. Then many nations and great kings will make him their servant. Mark down Jeremiah 27, 7, where he prophesies the future of Babylon and the destruction uh, therein. And so Belshazzar is the ruler that we're going to meet tonight, a relative of Nebuchadnezzar, and the writing is definitely on the wall. Jesus uh, looked at the religious leaders of his day and he said, "You know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times." Matthew 16:3. In Luke 19:41, Jesus wept over Jerusalem and he said, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. He goes on to say, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 through 8, just write it down for your notes. Paul's talking about the day of the Lord. And he says, the world, when the day of the Lord commences, will be saying as a mantra, peace and safety, peace and safety, but there will be no peace then sudden destruction will come upon them, like birth pangs upon a woman in labor, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that that day should overtake you like a thief. You are sons of light. You are sons of the day. Paul says, those who get drunk, get drunk at night. Those who sleep, sleep at night. But we are children of the light. We should not be overtaken by what overtakes those who are ignorant to the truth of God. Do you know your Bible? Do you know the signs of the times? Do you understand the writing on the wall? Can you discern what you should be doing in this very time, in this very hour? What should you be doing? You should be studying the Word of God. You should be reading it for all it's worth and applying it. That's what we're learning in the book of James, right? We should not have churches strewn across America who come in to hear a sermon for 30 to 45 minutes with no intention to leave and do anything with it. That's not what God has for you. What God has for you is to hear His Word and respond to it. Now, we're not going to do that perfectly. We all know that. But to the degree that we apply God's word, we will be the better for it. This event that we're going to read about uh, tonight took place in 539 BC. 539 BC. I'll give you some exact dates in a moment. This is Daniel 5, verse 1. Belshazzar the king had a party. (laughs) What a way to open up a chapter, right? I was reading a commentary uh, and Billy Graham, some years ago, opened a one of his famous evangelistic sermons with Belshazzar gave a party and invited all his friends. <laughs> How many of you could say, man, that captures at least a portion of my life? <laughs> A party, party, party. It was all all about the next party, man. Uh, A lot of people use uh, just about every excuse they can to party. Oh, this is going on. Let's have a party. Oh, this is going on. Let's have a party. But Belshazzar had a party, but sadly, it was the final party of his life. He was going to die. The Medo-Persian army was heading towards his kingdom. But he believed that things were impenetrable. In fact, they say that Babylon boasted at this time in history that they had a 20-year food supply within the walls of the city, that they could feed their populace. For 20 years, if an army was outside, they had these incredibly thick walls. They had the Euphrates River. They thought they were impenetrable. Oriental despots, says one writer, took great pleasure in hosting great banquets to display their wealth and splendor. You could compare Esther chapter one. And so that's what Belshazzar is doing. He has a great feast, verse one, for a thousand of his nobles or lords And he was drinking wine in the presence of a thousand. He was likely on some sort of elevated platform. Archaeologists tell us that what they've dug up in ancient Babylon reveals great halls that could easily fit a thousand people having some sort of gathering like this. So this is nothing unusual. And here they are having a party. This uh, particular event happened on the night of October 12th. 539 BC. October the 12th, 539 BC. We learn from extra-biblical sources, both in Cuneiform and Greek. uh, Historians Herodotus and Xenophon, the Persians were poised on the plain outside of Babylon, ready to take the city. It may well be that Belshazzar did not know that they were close, or that he believed that even if they were out there, they could not penetrate the walls of the city. Jesus said in the last days, when the Son of Man comes, it will be just like the days of Noah. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. This is Jesus. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. Jesus says, when you read some of these stories, and by the way, Jesus believed these stories were literal He believed there was a literal flood, worldwide flood. He believed that Noah got on a boat with his family. He believed that fire and brimstone rained on Sodom and Gomorrah. And I don't care what the liberal so-called scholars say today about what they believe about these stories. I choose to believe Jesus. By the way, on Sunday, if you come, Jesus believed in Jonah and a big, fish. What sort of fish was it? I don't know, but it was big, and it swallowed a prophet, and he came to his senses in the midst of a fish. More to come on Sunday. I hope you're here, but anyway, Jesus said it's going to be that same way. In fact, when Lot uh, went to his sons-in-law and told them to get out of town, they thought he was joking. They thought he was telling them a whopper. What do you mean the city's going to be destroyed? <laughs> Until all of a sudden, ah! right? And that's kind of how the world, and we're going to see Belshazzar's attitude is oh, nothing's going to happen. Or maybe Belshazzar had this attitude. Maybe he thought his demise was coming, so he embraced this saying Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. So maybe that's why he was parting it up. Whatever the case may be, uh, this does seem to be a sneak attack on the part of the Persian army. And Belshazzar's writing was on the wall. Why was he so impervious to the danger that was coming? Karl Marx said that that religion is the opiate of the people. Listen to these words. He meant that religion puts us to sleep so that our oppressors have less trouble maintaining their supremacy. But Marx got it exactly backward. It is not religion that drugs us. It is sin. True religion wakes us up by turning us from sin to the righteousness of God that is in Jesus Christ. At the moment of the greatest of all dangers, Belshazzar was drugging himself at his party. Yet it is not only Belshazzar who has done this. Our culture is doing it as well. Some time ago, a book by Neil Postman entitled Amusing Ourselves to Death came out. Public discourse in the age of shoe business appeared in American bookstores. (coughs) It was all about television and its pernicious effects on our country. It might well have been written about a culture at large and have voiced alarm at our spiritual condition. By refusing to think, especially about eternal realities, and by filling our days with entertainment, we lose sight of danger and plunge into the abyss. Close quote. Now I'm quoting somebody else, but don't you think that's quite accurate? That we have a culture that's entertaining itself away from reality. But if you can see the truth tonight and wake up to the realities of the kingdom of God You will see more clearly than you've ever seen before. Belshazzar tasted the wine, verse 2. He gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels, which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, just a side note in Hebrew and in what would be considered uh, the Chaldean language of uh, Aramaic here. There is no word for grandfather or grandson. So when you see father, it could well be several generations. So just so you understand, that's why some believe that this is a grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. His father had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem, in order that the king and his nobles, his wives and concubines, might drink from them. Now, why do you think that Belshazzar, he had to know some of these stories, he had to know something about his grandfather's professions, about the God of Israel. He had to know something about the story of Nebuchadnezzar turning into some sort of beastly creature out in the field. Remember last time? (laughs) Right? Don't you think somewhere along the line... He was told that the God of Israel is nobody to mess with. Maybe Nebuchadnezzar after that locked away the golden vessels and shared with his family, don't mess with the God of Israel. Oh, have I got some stories to tell you, right? You would think that somehow he had some information about the God of Israel, about Daniel. Why does he take the holy vessels and drink from them now in the midst of the party with a thousand of his nobles there? Only for one reason. To impress my friends. <laughs> Watch what I'm about to do. Boys. Hey, bring those golden vessels that are locked up over there. That Grandpa locked up. Bring it over here. Bring it See? See what I'm doing right here? I'm drinking from the, the vessels of the God of Israel. <laughs> now. I know. Why? To impress your friends, why would you take something that's holy and turn it into something that's common? Do you know that I look at our culture today and I wonder if we even know what holy means anymore? If if we even know what something sacred really is, something that's actually been set apart unto God, that's holy ground, holy territory, sacred, precious, to be protected, to be preserved. Do you agree do you look at our culture and wonder if someone could define what sacred is anymore what's precious what's holy I, I wonder and when we take what is holy and put it at a common level there's no other way to say this we're spitting in the face of God. When we take institutions that God has called holy and has defined and set apart and sanctified as unto him and we minimize it and we make it common, we are taking what is holy and we are putting it down to a level that dishonors God. There's no other way to say it. And that is what Belshazzar did. And I think he knew better. But I think he was trying to impress his friends and all of us could confess that we've probably done some silly things to impress our friends. Somebody said, most people buy a new car just so they can pull up to a stoplight and impress someone that they'll probably never see again. <laughs> it's not, it's not an indictment if you have a new car. But you understand what's being said. And so... He's got the vessels and they brought the gold vessels and they had been taken out of the temple of the house of God, which was in Jerusalem. The king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. Now you all know if you've read anything about the temple, God says this is holy. This is set apart for the temple. This is holy. When God calls something holy, the basic definition of holiness is to set apart. To be set apart to God. This is called the Holy Bible. Do you know why it's called the Holy Bible? Because it's God's word. Holy prophets were called holy. Not because they were especially holy. But because they had been set apart to be God's spokesman. Holy ground wasn't especially holy unless it had been set apart where God was there. The ground was holy because God was there. I got the privilege of baptizing a young man in my pool. Uh, just within the last couple of weeks. And I said to a group of people, this water, this pool has been in my backyard for a number of years. And it's been swumming and people have been dunked in it and they've jumped in it and they've frolicked in it and whatever else they've done. But tonight, this circle of water has become holy. Do you know why? Because you, my friend, young man, are about to be baptized. And this water will now be set apart to uh, honor God in a baptism which will symbolize your union with Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. So for right now, in this moment, this water is holy. Are you with me? That's what holiness is. The, the vessels could be like any other cup, but because they were set apart as unto God, And by the way, you are holy. Not because you're especially holy. (laughs) You know, I'm a holy man. (laughs) I'm a holy woman. No, you are holy because you have become the vessel of what? The living God. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Do you believe that tonight? You have been set apart unto God for good works that God prepared that you should walk in them. You are holy. And because you are holy, God wants you to behave differently because he has set you apart for his kingdom, for his purposes. To be a vessel sanctified for the master, useful for good works. As Paul writes uh, to the Thessalonian church, this is 1 Thessalonians 4.4, 4. he says, Each of you should know how to possess his own vessel or body in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. If a man cleanses himself, says Paul in 2 Timothy 2.21, from these things, youthful lusts and wickedness and all that stuff, he will be a vessel of honor, sanctified, useful, to the Master, you're the temple of the living God. Well, Belshazzar was having his party and he was drinking. Verse four: They drank the wine and praised the gods of uh, gods of gold and silver, of bronze and iron, wood and stone. So they had the holy vessels; they're drinking the wine from them, mocking God. But as they drank from that which was holy from the Jerusalem temple. They began to praise the gods of gold and silver and bronze and wood and stone, which the Bible says cannot speak, cannot hear, have no emotion. They are nothing. And they began to use the holy vessel set apart to the true God to praise false gods. And God has a very dim view of such matters. (laughs) I think God looked from heaven and said, Okay, Belshazzar, (laughs) your career... Is over. And so notice what happened. Suddenly, the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand, verse 5, on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. Can you imagine this? Yeah, we praise the gods of silver and gold and bronze. Look at what we're doing. And all of a sudden, a hand shows up, probably a disembodied hand, that's what the text says, and begins to write on the plaster wall. Now, if you're the king, <laughs> this is suddenly, this is not like, a, uh, you know, get ready for this or anything. This is suddenly, all of a sudden, the hand's there. And it's a human hand, but it's writing on the plaster wall. Now, what would you do if in the middle of your party, in the middle of trying to impress your friends, a hand shows up and begins to write on your wall? Would you be a little bit unnerved? Would you be going, whoa, what is happening? And by the way, the Babylonians believed in dark omens. They believed in signs and omens and things like this. Can you imagine being the king and one moment you're, having a good time, and you're impressing your friends. And the next moment, a hand has showed up, the fingers of a man's hand writing on your wall. You would sober up quickly. Uh, What is the man's hand? We can't say dogmatically, but we know God has written before. He wrote the Ten Commandments, Exodus 31, 18. Jesus wrote on the ground in John 8, 6. And Jesus said in Luke eleven twenty, 20, I cast out demons by the finger of God. He meant the power of God. So God is in a habit of writing at times, of course. And here's the proud king. All of a sudden, in front of all of his friends, the king's face grew pale. Verse 6, his thoughts alarmed him. His hip joints went slack. And his knees began knocking together. Now this is a great description of fear. The NIV says his face turned pale. He was so frightened that his knees knocked together and his legs gave way. He began to walk around like the scarecrow in the Wizard of Oz. You know know how he walks around. He just kind of flopping around. Uh, He almost became like the guards at the tomb of Jesus Christ who became like dead men when the angel appeared. That's kind of what's going on here. Belshazzar was shook to his core. It doesn't take long to go from pride to facing all of a sudden your demise. You could say, as one writer put it, God turned the banquet hall into a courtroom and he wiped the proud smirk off Belshazzar's face. And the king called aloud, verse 7, to bring the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the Diviners. How many times do these guys have to be called and fail <laughs> until somebody figures out? Hey, let's just get Daniel, let's skip some of the, the other guys who are just gonna blow it anyway. But he calls for him and he called aloud, Help! Hey, send for the send for the guys who know the omens and the cigar send for the get them under here. And any man who can read this inscription and explain its interpretation to me will be clothed with royal purple. That's a That's a royal robe there. Have a necklace of gold around his neck and have authority as third ruler in the kingdom. Bible students, note that he says third ruler. We'll come back to that in a second. So he calls for all the wise men, all the the people who are supposed to be experts in dreams and all of this kind of thing. In 1850, one commentator, Ferdinand Hitzig, declared that Belshazzar was clearly a figment of the writer's imagination of the book of Daniel. But as usual, time is a way of overturning such theories. In this case, in 1854, a British consul named J.G. Taylor was exploring some ruins in southern Iraq for the British Museum, came across several small cylinders inscribed with 60 or so lines of cuneiform writing. Turned out that the inscriptions had been written at the command of Uh, Nabonidus or Nabonidus, who ruled Babylon from 555 to 539 B.C. Some believe he was also called Nebuchadnezzar because it was more a title than a name. Um, uh, What they found, they commemorated the repair of a temple tower at Ur, and they contained a prayer for long life and good health for Nabonidus and for his eldest son, guess what his name was? Belshazzar. After this discovery, several more finds produced the name Belshazzar, calling him the king's son or the crown prince. According to one account, Nabonidus or Nabonidus entrusted his kingship to Belshazzar. Excuse me for a moment. Here's what the skeptics do. They read a book like this and they say, Oh, archaeology has never shown that someone named Belshazzar was ruling Ancient Babylon during these years. So your Bible's not true. Go do something else. Throw away your Bible. And then you know what inevitably happens? They start digging around these areas, and then they find something that disproves the skeptic's theory. And the skeptic is then confronted and said... Uh, Sir, excuse me, but we just found the name Belshazzar and he was the king's son and probably ruling in his stead as the king was out fighting a war. What do you think of that? You know what the skeptic does? Oh, I'll move on to my next thing that I want to nitpick about the Bible. And every time it's been said that the archaeologist turns over the spade, the Bible is proven again to be reliable, reliable, reliable. In fact, the Bible just continues to back up what secular history tries to catch up with that the Bible says. So do not listen to this garbage. And, you know, sometimes we turn on the television and we get all these interesting theories about this and that and the question of the biblical authenticity and did Paul really know what he was talking about and maybe the cultural context was the determining factor of you the- <laughs> <laughs> like, ah! Just read your Bible. It's the Word of God. I'm not saying you shouldn't study these things, but every time they do this, they're proven to be false. Did you note that the promise from Belshazzar was that if someone could read the interpretation, he would make them what? Third ruler in Babylon. That meant that there were two others that would be above him, and it turned out that there was... Nabonidus, Belshazzar, the crown prince who was probably reigning in the stead of his father. Actually, his father was probably killed by the Persian army on this same night or just before this. And so he could only promise Daniel to be third highest because there were co-regents. There was the father and the son ruling Babylon at the time. Once again, confirming the biblical record. And so just so you can have confidence in your Bible. Now, all the king's wise men, verse 8, or not-so-wise men, came in, but they could not read the inscription or make known its interpretation to the king. Um, sometimes uh, the, the way I see these guys walking into the room is almost like slapstick comedy. You know, here we are again, boss. <laughs> well, what do you want us to read? Well, they're, they're not reading anything, right? Maybe they can read it, but they're not going to be able to give the interpretation. I think this is the third strike, don't you? So after three strikes, you're out. I would stop calling these guys. But the king, King Belshazzar was, uh, it says, all the king's wise men, they could not read the inscription or make notes in in its interpretation to the king. King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. His face grew even paler, uh, if that's possible, to become more pale, more blood drained out of his face. His nobles were perplexed. And the queen, this is the queen mother, entered the banquet hall. She apparently heard what was going on. Because of the words of the king and his nobles, the queen, the queen spoke and said, O king, live forever. That's not going to happen. Do not let your thoughts alarm you or your face be pale. Now, I can appreciate what the queen mother was saying, but it was time to panic. Here's what she says. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods, or the holy God, And in the days of your father or your grandfather, illumination, insight, wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, appointed him chief of the magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans, and diviners. Everybody pause. Look up for a second. How does he not know about Daniel? Are you kidding me? Why is it that the queen mother has to inform him that he's got somebody like Daniel in his kingdom? This means that Daniel is no longer head of the wise men. Maybe he's you know, been put somewhere else. I don't know why or why he doesn't know about Daniel, but he doesn't. This was because an extraordinary spirit, knowledge, verse 12, insight, interpretation of dreams, explanation of enigmas, solving of difficult problems. Wouldn't you want this guy on your team were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Let Daniel now be summoned, and he will declare its interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king 13. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you the Daniel, who is uh, one of the exiles from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? I think Daniel probably just nodded. Now I have heard about you, that a spirit of the gods is in you, and that illumination, insight, and extraordinary wisdom have been found in you. Just now the wise men and the conjurers were brought in before me that they might read this inscription and make its interpretation known to me. But they could not declare the interpretation of the message. But I personally have heard about you that you are able to give interpretations and solve difficult problems. Now, if you are able to read the the inscription and make its interpretation known to me, you will be clothed with purple and wear a necklace of gold around your neck. And you will have authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. Now, by the way, Daniel's probably about 80 at this point. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, keep your gifts for yourself. Give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription to the king and make the interpretation known to him. Now, I think Daniel, he's 80. He's like, been there, done that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, I'll make known to you the interpretation, but you can keep your gifts. You can give them to somebody else. By the way, you're going to be dead Something like that. So he says, O king, the most high God granted or gave sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar your father. And because of the grandeur which he bestowed on him, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language feared and trembled before him. Whomever he wished he killed, that is almost everyone except Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And whomever he spared, he wished he spared alive. Whomever he wished he elevated, and whomever he wished he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up, and his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly, he was deposed from his royal throne, and the glory, his glory was taken away from him. He was also driven away from mankind, his heart was made like that of the beast. His dwelling place was with the wild donkeys. He was given grass to eat like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he recognized that the Most High God is ruler over the realm of mankind and that he sets over it whomever he wishes. Mark that, Bible students. Yet you, his son or his grandson, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this. Now that tells us something, doesn't it? It tells us that Belshazzar knew this story. He knew about Nebuchadnezzar being humbled. But here's, I think, the kicker of it all those who don't learn from history are bound to repeat it. Have you heard that before? Do you know why you've heard that before? Because it's true. Those who don't learn from history are bound to repeat it. And we've seen it in the book of Daniel. And Daniel, bold, he addresses the king, but he says, Look, you haven't humbled your heart. You knew this, but you've exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven. 23. And they have brought the vessels of his house before you. You and your nobles, your wives, your concubines have been drinking wine from them. You have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see, hear, or understand. Write down Psalm 115, verses 1 through 8. But the God in whose hand your life breath and your ways you have not glorified. If you have an NIV, it says, but you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. This is brothers and sisters, is one of the most powerful Bible verses I think I've ever come across. God holds in his hand our very life breath and all our ways. Do you think that most people walking around our city believe that tonight? Do you think that most people who live in our country believe that God holds their very life in his hands? Their very breath is a gift. Each breath is a gift from God. Well, that's what Daniel told a king who could have killed him right on the spot. Can I apply it to us? Why is it that we don't learn from history? Why do we have to repeat the same mistakes over and over again? Why do we keep circling around without taking the off-ramp. Take the off-ramp. I don't know. I kind of like the sights around here. I don't think I'm going to take the off-ramp. And we go around and around in habitual sin patterns, knowing that the same thing that bit us the last time will bite us again. This is the struggle. And so Daniel's before the king, and he says, Look, man, you've mocked God. Here's the unvarnished truth. The hand was sent from him, and this inscription was written out. Therefore, he sent the hand and wrote the inscription NIV. Here it is. Now, this is the inscription that was written out. Many, many, tekel, eupharsin or euparsin. Many means numbered. It uh, has a repetition for emphasis, so it could be numbered, numbered, or counted, counted reading in this language from right to left. Tekel means weighed or assessed. The king did not measure up. And uparson, the plural of Perez, verse 28, means divided. So it's many, many, tekel, uparson. Now, the magi who were brought in, do you think that they knew the language? I think they did. So here's the interpretation. This is the message. Many, God has numbered your kingdom. Your days are numbered and put an end to it. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found deficient or wanting. Perez or Uparson, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and Persians. Have a nice evening. <laughs> now, hey, Look, if you're a prophet of God and you've been asked to give an interpretation, hurry up, bring that Daniel guy in. I know he can figure it out. All right, king, you might want to sit down for this one. (laughs) By the way, uh, let me straighten you out on a few things about what you've been doing. You've been dishonoring God. Here's the interpretation. Your uh, days are numbered. In fact, it's over. You've been weighed in the scales and you've been found deficient. And your kingdom is going to be given over to the Medes and the Persians and... uh, There's the message. Uh, Robe, uh, necklace, please. Now we know Daniel didn't care about those things, but his kingdom was over. Should Belshazzar have known? Well, the dream in Daniel chapter 2 told us the head of gold would be supplanted by the arms and chest of silver. Daniel 7 will expound on that some more. Why didn't he know? Uh, J. and McGee says, There's a story of a man who was a foreigner in this country. He was finally persuaded by his daughter to go to church, although he had great difficulty understanding English. However, he agreed to go with his daughter. Her name was Minnie. On that Sunday, the preacher was teaching on Daniel 5. He came to the portion of the passage where the writing on the wall was read, Many, many tekel you parson. Immediately, the father grabs his daughter and stormed out of the church. Father, what in the world's the matter? With a heavy heart and an accent, he replied, Did you hear what that preacher said? He said, Minnie, Minnie, come tickle the parson or the priest. (laughs) That's a little J. Bernard McGee humor for you there. No, that's not what he said. (laughs) Then Belshazzar gave orders and they clothed Daniel with purple. Not that Daniel wanted it, but that's what he promised. So they put a necklace of gold around his neck and issued a proclamation concerning him that he was now, he had authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. Now, did that mean much to Daniel, knowing what was about to happen? Thanks for the position, but uh, this is going to be short-lived. And that same night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was slain. He grew overconfident. Belshazzar would die that night. Here's a little bit of history. Uh, One ancient account alleged that the Persian general Ugbaru had troops dig a trench to divert and thus lower the water of the Euphrates River. Since the river flowed through the city of Babylon, the lowered water enabled besiegers to unexpectedly invade via the waterway under the thick walls. 87 feet thick... 300 to 350 feet high. So broad and strong were the walls of Babylon that chariots four side by side could parade around the top of the walls and reach the palace before the city was aware. So they lowered the river, dammed it up in some way, lowered the water level and began to sneak in. The city was equipped with grain and water that would last for years as I mentioned. The city likely grew overconfident like its uh, leader, thinking that the city was impenetrable, 15 miles square. But the end came quickly as uh, Belshazzar was slain on the night of October, uh, I believe I've got 16th or it might have been the 12th, 539 B.C. October, 539 B.C., Babylon and the kingdom of Babylon came to a close. See, kingdoms rise up and kingdoms fall. But God is sovereign, and he's over a kingdom which will last forever. What happened to Belshazzar? What happened to uh, Babylon? Simply this, they forgot, or at least forgot to heed the word of God. Because did they have the word of God? They did. They had interpretations from Daniel, they had probably Daniel sharing the truth about the God of Israel, but they chose to forget. And so Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about age 62. We'll uh, learn a little bit more about him. Uh, probably Darius is, Darius is not a name, but an honored title. Some believe the title for Cyrus, who uh, with his army entered Babylon uh October 29th, 539 B.C. It is used in inscriptions for at least five Persian rulers. History mentions no specific man named Darius the Mede. In 628, it's possible to translate Darius even as Cyrus. A less likely possibility is that Darius is a second name for Gubaru, the uh, general of the army. And uh, we'll learn a little bit more about this. But here's what happened. The writing was on the wall, Belshazzar ignored it, and it was his own demise. Now, I want to close with some good news. The writing of the ordinance of, ordinances of the law was against us. When Jesus was on the cross, there was a written charge over his head. You might remember it said, Jesus, King of the Jews. And when Jesus died on the cross, he took the law, the ordinances, those things which were against us, contrary to us, because we had broken the law. And he nailed the written code, which was against us, to the cross and erased the blackboard of my sin. Every sin that I've ever committed, all the writing on the wall that could be written against Michael Lance in John chapter 8, When Jesus is on the ground writing and some believe that he was writing out the sins of the people ready to stone the woman caught in the act of adultery. How many things could heaven's fingers write against me in thought, word, deed, and even sins of omission? Oh my goodness. If Heaven has a record of my sins. It's a long list. It's a big file. It's a long scroll. It's a long sheet of paper. Anybody else? Are you in the same boat as I? If God kept a record of sin, oh Lord, who could stand? Certainly not I. But with you, Forgiveness. But with you, amazing grace, the written code that was against Michael Lance, all the times I have broken God's law in my actions, in my thoughts, in my motives, and what I have omitted that I should have done, Jesus Christ, God, the King of Heaven, came down to pay the ransom and to erase the writing on the wall. That was against me. And had he not done that. Brothers and sisters. Can I just say to you tonight. I would be dust. Condemned. And rightly so. But my God is so good. That he's left me a written record. Of the gospel. And the blood of Jesus Christ. Cleanses me. From all sin. And if you have read this written record, you know that there's some hard chapters. We just read one tonight. And sometimes you're in church and you're like, oh, oh my goodness. Uh, I I just want to duck behind the pew for a while. That's me. But then you hear of a Savior who came for sinners like you and me to save us. Are you saved The more I read the Bible, the more I realize I need a Savior. How many times have I said that as we've gone through the book of James? I need a Savior. Oh, thank you, my Redeemer has come. And he was treated on that cross as if he had committed my sins and yours, though he was totally innocent. The good news of the gospel, what we're supposed to be proclaiming on the highways and byways to lost sinners who are the same as Belshazzar, who are with their buddies, having parties, thinking it's never gonna happen to me. I'm cool, I'm good. It happens to somebody else. The writing's not on the wall for me. I got news for you. It is. And you can say to somebody, the writing's on the wall. There's bad news, but I got really, really good news. There's a Savior. His name is Jesus. And he'll wash away every sin you've ever committed. That's who you are if you're a Christian. And if you're not, I would just say to you, I don't know what else to say than run away. Run, run to Jesus and make sure his blood, his work, his death and resurrection has been applied to your life. Amen. Father, thank you so much for your word. We're grateful to be together again on this Wednesday and we thank you for air conditioning. (laughs) Praise you, Lord. We have this comfortable building, but we don't want to be too comfortable in here, Lord, because we want to go out and proclaim the good news of a Savior who came to rescue us. Because we are all part of Babylon, Lord. We're all part of that world system. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. All of us, Lord. There's not one exception. But when Jesus came, he came to rescue sinners. The Apostle Paul put it beautifully. This is true. You can take this to the bank. Jesus Christ came to save sinners among whom I am the foremost. Lord, I just want to take a moment and I think I can speak for your people tonight just to say thank you for loving me. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for coming on that rescue mission. Thank you that when the the armies of Satan and sin and death were on the march, you came on a rescue mission. Help us to open our ears, open our heart to what you have for us. And if you're not a Christian tonight, here's here's what you need to do. Something like this. Lord Jesus, please save me. Thank you that you came to rescue me. Thank you for your death on the cross. Pray it if it's you. Thank you for your resurrection from the dead. I trust you. Thank you for the written record of both the truth of judgment, but the truth of of a savior. The truth of salvation in Jesus. I believe. I take you at your word. I trust you. I repent of my sin and place my faith in you. And I want to follow you and serve you and be an ambassador of this message of this king and this kingdom. If you have prayed that prayer, you've opened your heart. Praise God. Welcome to the family. And if you are maybe rededicating your life, or maybe just basking in the goodness of his grace once more. Praise God. Lord, we just want to say we love you, and we thank you in Jesus' holy name.